Well, in this passage I've just read, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, there's three verses I want to focus on this morning, and they are from verse 18 to verse 20. Let me read them again. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 5 at verse 18. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. <clears throat> for quite a number of years, I used to mark GCSE English literature examinations. And whatever the mark scheme for one year, particular to the questions, there was always one instruction to examiners that never varied. Award no further marks for repetition. Award no further marks for repetition. You can't say the same thing twice and get two marks for it if you're doing an exam. Well, at first glance, if we had to mark Paul on these three verses, he wouldn't do very well then, would he? Five times in three verses, either reconciliation, this word as a noun or the verb to, to reconcile or to be reconciled, come in rapid succession. God has reconciled us to himself, has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. And now we as Christ's ambassadors implore you, be reconciled to God. And it does sound, doesn't it, very much repetitive. But you see, in Jewish usage, and Jewish style, repetition is used to emphasize things that matter most, things of first importance. They're repeated either exactly or in very close parallel. We find it throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, you will find it in many of the Psalms, you will find it particularly in books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and you will find it in the prophets. In the New Testament, you will find it frequently in the ministry of Jesus himself and in many places in the epistles. Repetition for emphasis of what is most important. But nowhere is it almost jarringly so to our Western ears as these three verses. This constant word, reconcile, be reconciled, reconciliation. Why is Paul so emphatic about this? Because truly it's something of vital importance. Something that people must hear, something that people must be told. In fact, here is man's greatest need to be reconciled to God. 
Paul actually says that this is so central it can almost be seen as a summary of the whole gospel. It's the gospel he means in verse 18 that he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. In verse 19, he has committed to us the word or the message of reconciliation. What is this ministry of reconciliation? What is this, this word of reconciliation? I want to open these verses up by looking at two main ideas. The first is this. This is the message that people must hear. This is the message that people must hear. Put it another way, it addresses the sinner's greatest need. And secondly, this is the message that Christians must share and if we are the Lord's people this is our great responsibility so we start with the message that people must hear and yes it is I believe in some sense a way of expressing the sinner's greatest need and I make no apology for that old word that old word that bible word that men that women even Young people are sinners. It's very unpopular today. It's very unacceptable to people. Both in private conversation and occasionally after I've preached, I've had people say to me, don't call me a sinner. Don't call me a sinner. God's word is absolutely clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no not one, no one before a holy God can actually claim to be anything other than guilty in God's sight. We stand condemned because we are sinners. So what do we need? We need to be reconciled to God. We need to be right with God. What does it mean though to be reconciled? What is reconciliation? We hear it spoken of in, in the world of, of politics. Two, two nations at odds with each other, two factions within one nation. And some attempt is made, usually through the United Nations, to bring them together, to, to reconcile their differences, to prevent it from getting worse. And sadly, it more often than not proves totally unsuccessful, that attempt. Recent history is littered with examples. Go back a few years, consider the, the United Kingdom and Argentina and the, the so-called Falklands War of the 1980s. Supposedly at the end, the two nations were reconciled over the issue of those islands that we call the Shetlands and they call the Maldinas, but frequently trouble sort of rumbles again. It flares up. There's still that dispute because the underlying cause of the hostility has never been dealt with never been settled it continues to fester away there can be no real reconciliation where a broken relationship has not been healed now relate this to the verses that we're looking at Man needs to be reconciled to God, but it can only be if the cause that separates men from God 
is dealt with. And what is it that separates men from God? It is man's sin. From the very beginning of the Bible, from the very first human disobedience to their creator, the first rejection of God's way to go our way. That's what happens there in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. Not my way, not God's way, my way. That's really what Eve and then Adam are saying in rejecting what God has asked them to do. And there's a broken relationship at once. There's a broken relationship between God and humanity and sin broken. There's an old word that we don't often use these days, but it perfectly expresses this kind of broken relationship. Estrangement. Estrangement. It actually means something comes between two parties and makes strangers of them. The relationship is broken. I've already said that people today will object to the very idea and the very word sin. Yet in every level of human life, from the largest scale to the smallest, what do we see? We see the results of sin, we see the fruit of sin, and we see how it affects human life. Strife and hatred and bloodshed, large-scale open war, terrorism, small-scale divisions and jealousies and unhappiness at every level from the national to the personal, the individual. Why are people so much at odds with each other? And of course man has so many solutions to offer, political solutions, social solutions, economic solutions, psychological solutions, and yet they all leave the situation unchanged. Or if anything, it gets worse. Why? Because first and foremost, man is not at peace with God. People are living in a state of rejection of God, rebellion against God. And it seems increasingly defiant disobedience to God. Look at our own nation. Increasingly aggressive humanism and secularism controls the agenda now in seemingly every regard. The politicians, the media, the vociferous pressure groups, they, they champion and even lord attitudes and behavior which mean that Christian values, Christian faith, even Christian conscience is under attack in this land as never before it's all grounded first and foremost in what most people continue to utterly reject that we are in a state of estrangement from God and the more overt that rebellion against God becomes the more desperate the human condition is and we see it in the world at large we see it on the large scale international stage we see it at every level and we see it in our own society today. Sin. Disobedience to God. Estrangement from our maker. And however much they deny it, however much they deride it, the need that every man and woman's created being cries out for is to be reconciled to God, to be right with God. 
Here's the root cause of so much that is wrong in the human condition. Here's the reason that man lacks peace at every level from the largest scale to the individual. We are estranged from God. We cannot know peace with others or even in any lasting way with ourselves until we know peace with God. Our whole condition is out of joint. We're not what God made us to be or meant us to be. Well, that's the diagnosis. But Paul says in these great verses before us, there is a remedy, there is an answer. Here, in fact, is a message from God himself. Here is God's call given through his own faithful people to others, be reconciled to God. He says that when we are making that appeal known, it's as if God was pleading through us. The ESV says God making his appeal through us. But praise God, you see, these verses do not just set a great need before us. They speak wonderfully of God's gracious answer to that need. Here in verse 19, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. God does it, not us. The cause of a broken relationship is our sin. We couldn't deal with it even if we wanted to, but God. God who is the injured party, as it were. God who is the creator scorned and rejected by his own creatures. God has made a way of reconciliation in Christ. In Jesus Christ, his own son. In Christ, who was born as a human child in incredible condescending grace and came into his own creation to reconcile rebellious sinners to himself. You see what I've said, that there can be no reconciliation unless the underlying causes of the estrangement are dealt with. And only God could do that. Only God could deal with that barrier of sin between man and himself. But God is pure, God is holy, God is righteous altogether. Sin is an offence to him. And you see, he cannot just say, well, it doesn't matter. It can, it can easily be forgiven. It can easily be forgotten. That's the God people would like, isn't it? It's how some vainly imagine God to be. The American theologian and Christian writer and teacher Don Carson once put it like this. They want not our holy father in heaven as much as our rather senile, doting grandfather in heaven who will say, there, there, dear, it doesn't matter. In his trenchant way, Don Carson says, a figure that has all the moral integrity of a marshmallow. The God of this book, the true and living God who reveals himself here is a holy God. And let us be quite clear, let us not balk at the truth. It is only here, only in this book, only in this word of God, that God is truly revealed. 
despite all the objections to that claim that our day will make all the pressures of the liberal, politically correct consensus which holds such sway in this land and says you, you cannot make claims like that. What did Jesus say? Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is say, I am a way, and there are others if you prefer them. It doesn't say, look, I am a way, but you can make one of your own. It doesn't say, I am part of the way, and you trust me, and then you must do this, and do this, and do this. Jesus said, I am the way. The way no one comes to the Father except through me. For in his holiness, God cannot just, as it were, sweep sin under the carpet and forget it. That's not what Paul is saying when he says that God reconciled the world to himself in Christ, not imputing their trespasses, their sins to them. What does that mean? The literal word, the Greek word translated in this New King James as, as imputing, it's a word drawn from, from book, uh, bookkeeping or banking, and it means not reckoning this to someone's account. You've got, you've got a great bill, you've got a great debt, and it's there in your account until that account is settled. What Paul says is that, that God in Christ does not reckon to our account all the debt of our sin, not because he can just wipe it out as if it didn't matter to him. That wouldn't be forgiveness, you know. People say, well, we, we can just forgive things. Why can't God just forgive things? For God to just ignore sin effectively is not forgiveness. It would be a flabby permissiveness. It would mean sin didn't matter to God. It would deny that God was holy. It would deny his own nature. What Paul is saying is that God will not call us to account if we are trusting the Lord Jesus Christ because our account has been settled by him, by the one he sent to reconcile mankind to himself. Jesus came to bear our sin and take our punishment, our judgment. When he died in our place on the cross of Calvary, and for all who will trust in him as saviour, their account is cleared because it's been satisfied. Not by us, but by Jesus for us. Just to, to keep for a moment to that banking or bookkeeping idea. Imagine a bankrupt, totally bankrupt, called to answer for a huge debt and unable to do so. And they get to court and they're told there's nothing to answer because a rich benefactor has settled that account in full and it's clear. They haven't paid a penny themselves but their debt is gone. That's what God has done for us in his son's death on the cross. Long, long before Paul Long before the earthly life of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah had this wonderful awareness given to him. And these will be very familiar verses to many of us from Isaiah chapter 53. And there the prophet writes, 800 years or so before Jesus was actually born, 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's incredible. It's wonderful. It's God's grace which is beyond our understanding really. God, God could not just sweep away sin as if it didn't matter, but he sent his son to bear our sin. And the Lord Jesus came and he lived a, a life that was utterly without sin. And with no sin of his own to answer for, he answered for us instead. He had truly is the wonder of the message of reconciliation. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. But dear friends, that doesn't mean everybody in the world, regardless of how they respond to Christ, of course it can't. As John 3 verse 16, for many the most familiar verse perhaps in the Bible says, God so loved the world that he gave his, his only begotten, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And by that faith in God's Son, which God's own grace opens our hearts to receive as we hear this message of reconciliation, we have fully, eternally, peace with God. Not, not by anything that we do or ever could do or ever will do, but by what Jesus has done. I heard it put very simply by another preacher who I listened to on a particular occasion last year. And he said, the gospel word is not do, it's done. The gospel word is not do, not anything I do, you do, or ever could do. The gospel word is not do, it's done. Jesus has done it. Oh, dear friend, are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Do, do you know that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, and that means you? Here's the message that everyone needs, that we must hear. The sinner's greatest need, God's all-gracious answer to that need. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. But, but secondly, much more briefly, it must be, but we must see that this message of reconciliation is the message that Christians must share. It is our great responsibility as Christians, whether it be to these first century Christians in Corinth or to us today, Paul says, God has given us this ministry of reconciliation. God has committed to us 
this message of reconciliation. People must hear it. But how shall they hear without a preacher? Now, that never meant what sadly churches so often took it to mean, that all we need do to fulfill our God-given role and responsibility is make sure our pulpits faithfully preach the gospel every Sunday, as this one does, and then we wait for people to come in and hear it. That was never fulfilling the gospel commission. How much more today when, when so few do come in? Those churches which are, are relatively thriving in UK terms, you yourselves here by God's grace, the church I'm now a member of in Southport. But how many from the community around are really touched and coming? I preach now a number of churches on the Lord's Day and some of them are virtually in single figures every Sunday. We have a message to take to people where they are. We have a message that they must hear out there in the unbelieving world, out there in the antagonistic culture that we're living in today. There's a commission given and it's not withdrawn until the Lord comes again. Go and make disciples. Not wait for them to come. Go. Only the grace of God can open a sinner's heart and change it, but He's pleased to do it through what Paul somewhere else calls the foolishness of preaching. And again, he doesn't just mean formal preaching like I'm doing here today. The message that men scorn and sneer at and reject is the message that they must hear. Like those early disciples in the Acts of the Apostles, when they're actually scattered by Jewish persecution out from Jerusalem, it's then that the gospel begins really to spread. We're told they go everywhere preaching the word. It doesn't mean they're doing this on street corners all the time. It means wherever they go, they are communicating, they are sharing, they are talking about, they are giving the message. They're pointing men to Jesus. Paul emphasizes this in verse 20. Now look what he says here. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. I don't think he's just talking about himself and the fellow apostles. He's talking about obedient believers. We are ambassadors for Christ. You know, it's one of the most glorious things and at the same time, one of the most challenging things that can be said of every Christian. We are ambassadors for Christ. What's an ambassador? Someone who represents their country abroad in a foreign land. The British ambassador in France, in the United States, in Russia, and, and so on. And the ambassador's task is a more demanding one if they are based in a country that's unfriendly to their own nation or has very different laws and cultures. Well, as Christians, we are Christ's ambassadors in a world that is alien to, estranged from, in rebellion against him and his father. Just consider these words which Jesus speaks to his disciples in John's gospel. He's in, verse, in chapter 15, these verses from verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Chapter 17, just two chapters on, and he offers that great prayer on behalf of his own people in the world. And he says this, I am no longer in the world now. He's speaking as if the cross is already behind him. He can see through to that accomplishment of his work. But these are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me. A few verses further on, and he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Jesus prays, Father, keep my people, protect my people. They're in an alien culture. They're in a world that is dominated by the false thinking and the false teaching, if you like, with Satan behind it. Father, keep them. Father, protect them. They're my ambassadors. You see, human ambassadors are are said to be under the protection and rule of their own government by international law, wherever they are actually based. The British embassy in America, Russia, wherever it may be, is technically British property. Christ's ambassadors in a world that scorns his name are under the keeping care of his almighty father. And we need always to realize that. But our call is to be faithful ambassadors. An ambassador does not speak in their own right, does not choose what to say. They speak for their government. In earlier history, they spoke literally for their king. And they must not depart from their mandate, from what they are given to declare or to say or to do. They mustn't exceed it and they mustn't add to it. Christian, we have a message from the King of Kings. We must not depart from it, either to add to it or the greater temptation for most of us to leave something out, to water it down in case we give offence. The King's message is non-negotiable. Whatever the pressures, whatever the disapproval from the society around us, I, I mentioned earlier, how they hate the exclusive claim of John 14, verse 6, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except by me. It's their only hope, as it's our only hope. And we must not compromise it. We must be true ambassadors for our King. And so it is that God is making his appeal through us as the ESV puts it. Be reconciled to God. Not by anything that you or I do or can do or ever will do. By what Christ has done. That's the message entrusted to us. That's the message that we must take. Unalterable, non-negotiable, God-glorifying. What God in his wondrous grace has done 
to bring rebellious, estranged sinners like you and me to himself, fully reconciled. Just as I close, just glance at verse 21 that closes the chapter. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I've known that verse for many years. It's only in this last year or so that it's really hit me what I believe it is saying. God made him, the Lord Jesus Christ, who knew no sin of his own, to be sin for us. Now, I do not think this is just saying that, that God treated his pure and sinless son as if he were a sinner. It says more. He treated him as if he were sin itself. He made him to be sin, as if he were the embodiment, as if he were the personification of all that offends God and calls his judgment out. He made him to be sin and he poured out his judgment on the sin bearer, on Jesus who took the sinner's place so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. The great exchange, as it's sometimes put, that took place on the cross of Calvary. Here's the billionaire benefactor clearing the whole account of all who will trust in him and giving them his riches. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them because his son was made sin in our place. God grant, dear friends, that we're trusting in that precious saviour in Christ and in Christ alone knowing that we are reconciled to God. And then, by God's own grace alone, by love-inspired obedience, look at Paul, his motives. His, well, yes, he speaks about how the fear of the Lord is one motive. That's where I began the reading. And then how the love of Christ compels us. May we know that compulsion. May we know this message given to us and be true to our call as ambassadors for Christ to God's glory. Amen.